How does the NSF, the National Science Foundation, steer research in artificial intelligence? That's the topic today on Mind Matters News. Greetings, I'm your ample host, Robert J. Marks. The National Science Foundation, or NSF, is a powerful force in guiding research in academia in the United States. A grant from the NSF is very prestigious. If a new professor is awarded an early career award from NSF, they got tenure, almost certainly. So what's going on at NSF behind the scenes? Dr. Paul Werbos, our guest today, is the inventor of Arabic propagation, which is the most commonly used technique used to train artificial neural networks today. He served for over 30 years as a program director at NSF, and during this time, Dr. Werbos steered NSF's funding in much of its machine intelligence research, and he's our guest today on Mind Matters News. Paul, welcome. Hi, Robert. Hey, what year, what year did you retire from NSF? You said you retired. Yes. So it's a long story. I started there in 1988 and I, my retirement, I came home to work for a new boss, my wife on Valentine's day, 2015. 2015. So about six years. So you spent before that over 30 years as program director, as a program director at NSF that largely steered NSF's interest and research into artificial neural networks. During your tenure at NSF, what what did you see the major turning points in machine intelligence? You mentioned last podcast, the genesis of deep learning is one of them. Yeah, it became obvious to me on day one. My understanding of how a brain works and what real intelligence is requires a lot of steps forward. And I wrote down these steps. And the question is, how long will it take for our science culture to catch up to even half of it? And I do have papers out there with roadmaps. One of them goes 100 years into the future. And I know how to get there. It's just people have to do the work. There's just a lot of steps. And so I would say my whole tenure, my 30 years at NSF, I went through one step after another, after another. It's like every four years, it was like a different world. And the steps are not all done yet. In the very beginning, people did not believe in neural networks almost anywhere. And why was that? I think that that was because of the uh, terrible fall of interest in neural networks. And I... I kind of time it to the publication of the book Perceptrons by Minsky and Papert that dried up the research. And so people were disillusioned. And so yes. neural networks had to be reproved using the yes. algorithm that you created uh, in order to show that many of the objections raised by Minsky and Papert were, were wrong. And so that was what yeah. you were up against, right? That's, that is pretty much the story. But there were a whole lot of other little stories too. When I had that little talk with Minsky I mentioned. Yes, in the last podcast, yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I was talking about why, why it was that the, none of those neural networks they came up with were working. And I basically said there are a couple of things you got to change. But number one is it's a bad model of the neuron. You're assuming the neuron is a square wave generator. 
It's like you think it's a digital thing. Everybody <laughs> believed you're scientific only if you're digital. You output ones and zeros, you're scientific. Anything else is not scientific. And our brain being intelligent must be scientific, so it must be based on ones and zeros. And that's right. Your airbag propagation algorithm, although highly digital, is based on continuous partial derivatives and calculus. So in front of Marvin Minsky, when he repeated, oh, yeah, but everybody knows the brain is one zero, I said, you know what? I took this course in neuroscience at Harvard. Let me show you the textbook. Let me show you the time series of the outputs of these neurons. Do these things look like square waves to you? Look at these things. Let's build a model that fits the data. And the data shows that it's basically frequency coding. Above a certain level, there's a limit to how much output you have. There's a lower limit, an upper limit. And you can pretend it's linear in the intermediate range, but the point is it's continuous. It's not one zero. You have continuous variables. And if you do it that way, then I said, I have a new way to calculate derivatives and I can prove that it'll work. So we have a provable way to do the derivatives. We have a provable way to train it and it fits the empirical data. But Minsky didn't like your argument. And Minsky said, but all the computational neuroscientists know the brain is a square wave generator. <laughs> and they all know it's ones and zeros. That's what McCulloch told us. And if I disagreed with a neuroscientist, they would laugh at me because I'm not from the right field. I'm not from their field. You've got to be a neuroscientist to get away with stuff like that. And I said, but what if there's data? Even data won't change them. If you're not one of the right people, they won't listen to you. That's what he said. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so what, what were some of the other turning points you saw? Uh, could you elaborate on the deep learning? I think the deep learning is, is largely credited to Jeffrey Hinton, who came up with convolutional convolutional neural networks. But what's that? Oy vey. I, I'm not Jewish, but there are times when you got to say oy vey. So the, the, there is so much false history out there. It's just pathetic. Well, I've seen even an article where Jeffrey Hinton was credited because of his... Uh, involvement with the PDB book as being the originator of Arabic propagation. Uh, yeah, there's a whole lot of stuff. Which is not true. You were the one that did that. No, no. And, 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 and not only that, it wasn't independently rediscovered either. That's also false. I don't want to get into the whole history of who did what, with what motive. It's not very constructive. Well, we talk about uh, the, the book uh, Talking Net, where you Talking Nets, yeah. where you get into that. Yeah, some of that. Right. There's a lot more. <laughs> they thought that was racy. They, they didn't even see the half of what, what's happened. But, but let me come back. Okay. The, P, the PDP books do have a role in history. There's no question that the history of the field was strongly influenced by the PDP books. And I think that that old boss of mine was involved in funding them somehow. Uh, I was talking about that too. But bottom line is these books were influential. No question about it. And the cognitive science part was really very insightful in cognitive science. But the main machine that Hinton was pushing was something called a Boltzmann machine. And the quick summary is it basically didn't work. It was based on not understanding the math. I remember Boltzmann machines. And we're going to talk about annealing later on, which I think he used in the Boltzmann machine. But uh, let's not go there now. But the bottom line is, uh, 
You got into Hinton because of something else. I got into Hinton because um, I convolutional neural networks, which I think, by the way, convolutional neural networks, I don't know who came up with the idea, but they're brilliant. Okay. Convolutional neural nets became popular when I was at NSF. And I have to admit, the first that I heard of the standard convolutional neural network, uh, I thought of it as a kludge. So see, it works, and it was something I wasn't backing. Where did it come from? It came from AT&T Bell Labs. Really? And, and if I had to guess, I would say, I think it came from a French woman, to be honest. Uh, either that or an Israeli woman. And they, they had a whole group. The Bell Labs group was really amazing. And certainly, Jan LeCun was a key part of that group. There's no doubt. Jan LeCun was a lot of the success of that group. But there were, there were a lot of other really important and creative people there whose names should come to my head. But the bottom line is they were the ones who took this idea. I believe it started in France. I think it was the group that was working together like in a small company in Paris. And then they moved to Bell Labs where they became routinized. And I think Jan LeCun has some personal affection for Jeff Hinton, who was kind of bringing him to the world of cognitive science, which is an important world, uh, connecting him to a community. Uh, but to be honest, uh, I, I really don't think the convolutional network came from him. I I'm pretty sure it came from this group in France. And, and then with Lacoon. And, and uh, for many, many years, I certainly cited this group. In fact, I remember there were like, 15 authors of the seminal paper on the convolutional network. And there were early tests by the post office on, on who can recognize zip code characters. There were two groups that just beat the world in the competition that the post office set up. Oh, that would be, that would be a perfect application for convolutional neural networks, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah. And, okay. and, and that's sort of where it started. This huge zip code recognition competition funded by the post office and I later worked with a guy, I believe he was a Chinese-American who moved to UTC, who led that competition. There were so many false papers about that competition. So many people said, I won this competition with X. I won it with Y. And so I went to the guy who actually ran the competition. I said, hey, you've got the scores. Who won it? He said, two groups won it. And they both had convolutional neural nets from independent sources, one German, one French originally. And, and, and I believe that Lacoon's group was one of the two that really won the competition. It was a huge breakthrough. They did much better than anybody ever did on that problem before. But it was just the zip code recognizer because the original convolutional network had certain limitations. And um, we had ways to go beyond that. In fact, we have networks today that are much more powerful than the convolutional networks and in the test, the new networks are much more powerful, but most of the people graduating computer science don't know about them. You mentioned deep learning as one of the things that took off during your tenure at NSF. Mm -hmm. uh, could you differentiate uh, convolutional neural networks, which are a specific case of deep learning from the field in general? Okay. One bad thing that happens when you make it to Oprah and everybody reinvents you they come up with 20 definitions of the same word. You used to think you had a word, and then all of a sudden, there are 20 different definitions. You know, the one that I remember on that, uh, Paul, is artificial intelligence. When, when I was a boy in artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence meant the stuff that 
Minsky did, which yeah. was a rule-based sort of thing. You know, if, if this, then this, if this, then this. And we didn't like this in Connectionist. I think you would probably agree. That's the reason that IEEE started the word computational intelligence to differentiate from artificial intelligence. Well, I, I think you, you were the, yeah, you're the guy who came up with the computational intelligence. Well, yeah, you know, I was, I, I was, I, I was on a team of uh, three people. I think Jim Bezdek and Pat Simpson and I came up with it in an email exchange. But the point is, is that to your point, the definitions change. Uh, today, artificial intelligence subsumes all of this. It, it subsumes neural networks. It, it subsumes expert systems and everything else. So there is, there's an evolution. Uh, it, it assumes a hundred cultures that use different definitions. The same thing with the word consciousness. And even the word love means different things to different people. <laughs> yes. And certainly the word God means different things to different people. Well, yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yes, indeed. And and then the question is, which of these things are the real ones and which are the made up definitions? And believe it or not, we have that problem even in the world of neural nets. So to me, to me, convolutional neural nets and deep learning, I think they're well-defined words, but most people are hearing different things these days. Uh, to me, um, what the deep learning originally meant is just you have many, many layers, typically with a feed-forward network. And we were doing many, many layers long before these people were using the term deep learning. I was funding, supporting, and actually I wrote the original mathematics for because if with one or two layers, everybody could see just by eyeball. Yes. If you wanted to do it with many layers, you've got to know the math. So I funded a guy named Krishna Kumar working with NASA who applied many, many layers. And he was doing this long before any computer scientist had even heard of the term deep learning. And he didn't even call it that. I didn't call it that. I think my paper in ICNN in 1988 was the first uh, reasonably open publication of what you can do with many, many, many layers and how to do it. But there's a problem with that. Okay. Yes, we can use many, many layers. The mathematics of many, many layers is good. But the way the brain does it is different. The brain has a more powerful way to do the same thing using the same math, but more general. The kind of recurrence that we have in the brain can do anything a deep network can do and basically better. So understanding how to really use recurrence is much more powerful than what they're doing with the deep learning. But, you know, having many layers can be useful and there's good mathematics and it's the same mathematics. So that's deep learning. Uh, the term deep learning became popular when a bunch of computer scientists learned 20 years later stuff we were doing before, but they applied it and it was useful. They have every reason to be proud that they brought it to application. But convolutional networks are totally different. Convolutional networks are something I don't think I really understood until the late 1990s. Well, you beat me. I, I think I only, only understood them about five years ago. So, okay. So, um, I, 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 got, I think I got something like seven patents at about just the late 1990s. And, and those patents already address many of the technologies of the future that they still haven't fully caught up to because they're just a whole lot of pieces. Oh, how many patents do you have? They're probably expired by now, but probably about 
you know, I don't know, seven, eight, something like did, that. Did you get these when you worked for NSF or these after? Yes. So it's it's assigned to the government, I suppose. Um, you asked about how NSF is doing. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, and I'm glad I won't have to get into every gory detail because they got ups and downs like the whole world. But for many, many years, the Office of General Counsel, the number one lawyer for NSF, there was a guy named Charles Brown. And when I think of the greatest glories of NSF in its absolute peak period, Charles Brown, the general counsel, had a lot to do with it. He really? went to the Harvard Law School. He learned about freedom. He learned about free speech, intellectual truth. I mean, a whole lot of very basic principles. He understood the spirit of the Constitution and his way of dealing with regulations and rules. He respected the rights and the privacy of everybody and the integrity of the system. So at some point, the idea came up, gee, uh, I've got a few ideas. What should I do about patenting? And I talked to him. And he said, we now have a clear policy. And in those days, we did. He said, the clear policy is, if you come up with a patentable idea, we want you to get it patent. And it won't be an NSF patent. We will have to make a decision whether the idea came from your work as an NSF employee or did it come from outside of your job. And if it came from your work, the government has an interest, which is like a no free use of the thing. But even then you're allowed to patent and we encourage you to patent because if you don't, the Chinese will patent it two years after you invent it and we won't be allowed to use it, he said. <laughs> is that right? Do we have do we have a treaty pat or a patent treaty with China? Well, times have changed. Patent law has changed. Okay. Patent law has changed. I'd probably have 10 more patents if they hadn't changed the patent law. Okay. Okay. Um, but uh, but they, they have substantially changed the patent law in ways that are not so good for small inventors, in all fairness. Yes. I acted as an expert witness in a number of uh, cases involving kind of computational intelligence, artificial intelligence. Yeah. And things have changed. I, I mean, it's it's almost impossible for the little guy anymore. Right. So the only thing the little guy can do is talk to the people in China who are willing to pay for that kind of stuff. And a lot yeah. of that is going on. I have, I have a friend who has a bunch of patents and uh, he says all the patent is good for is the, it gives you the right to sue people. And <laughs> that's, that's basically what it is. And it costs big bucks yeah. to sue people. So anyway, basically I had a misunderstanding when I was in early graduate school. Some of my friends, First papers on reinforcement learning, brain-like intelligence. Um, I believed that the kind of design I did for my PhD thesis, with a few tweaks, parameters, basically could replicate what a mammal brain does. And then I learned a lot about mammal brains. I learned step by step by step, mammal brains do this, do that. There's some fundamental mathematical principles and you can build a universal intelligence doing what I did in my thesis, but it's not a fast universal intelligence. You can build a faster, more powerful one by using some very fundamental principles. And um, I even did a paper in World Congress of Computational Intelligence 2014 in Wiki. I said, here is a four-step procedure 
math one, math two, math three, that'll bring you up to at least the mouse level of universal general learning ability. And one of them, one of the key levels I called full spatial intelligence. And it's like a convolutional network, except it exploits more general spatial symmetries. And the more general spatial symmetries give you a power that a normal network doesn't have, a convolutional network doesn't have. You have to have this additional power in the spatial intelligence algorithm. And I was so proud, you know, giving that talk at Wiki and everybody seemed to listen, except the Chinese government really listened and started a new program. And there was a U.S. intelligence <laughs> agency guy there who said, no, no, we can't do this. We have to stop this work in the U.S. Oh, boy. So they stopped that line of research in the U.S. and they expanded it in China. Why? For what reason would they want to stop the U.S. research? Were they going to take it under, under the umbrella like of NSA or something? Um, Probably you can only speculate. Yeah, yeah. No, no, yeah. Well, I spoke to the guy, but he didn't tell me his total game plan. Okay. And I, I have circumstantial evidence about what happened. I have discussed it with other people at NSF. There were a lot of people at NSF who were concerned about changes that occurred in many areas. And we debated whose fault are they and what's the reason. People once told me when I worked for the Department of Energy 10 years before NSF, people used to tell a joke. The Department of Energy has already been privatized. It's a joint corporation owned 60% by the oil industry and 40% by the nukes. And it was like that my last few years there. When I wow. went to NSF, I said, now I'm in a place where the powers that be are the American Physical Society and the deans. And the American Physical Society and the deans respect scientific values a lot more than those other guys did. And that's why that was a big part of why I moved to NSF, because the culture was totally the deans and the APS, and they're not perfect, but, you know, they have high values. But then came this Washington corruption business. My theory is that Washington corruption is what really hit more than anything else. But that's my speculation. I had friends who had other theories. I wanted to ask you, since your retirement, I'm sure you've kept your fingers on the pulse of what's happening in our, our neural networks, artificial intelligence. What do you see some of the major advances in machine intelligence since your retirement? Um, I have to confess, one of the joys in retirement is I have a few other retired friends. And one is a woman named Frederica Darema, who used to be head of the Air Force Office of Scientific Research. And every time people ask me, what's a quick summary of what is going on today with all of these algorithms and all of these different forms of AI, mm -hmm. the, the best source I recommend to them, Frederica Derema organized a conference a few months ago, global Zoom type conference on something she calls DDDAS. And if you want to know the answer to your question, the starting point would be do a search on DDDAS, video 2020 or 2021. And from her conference, I learned just how diverse the world is. There are so many different things they call AI. And yes. there are so many experts who think they know things that are mutually contradictory. But I would say out of 100 groups, there's a major percentage 
where they think the best way to solve the problems of AI is to get rid of it and go back to what we did 40 years ago in mathematics before they even had AI, let alone neural networks. There are are people getting funded to do that, and they persuade people this is the greatest clever thing. You haven't heard of it in the last 20 years. That's because it's 100 years old. Wait wait a minute, Paul. So they, they want to abandon AI I think that that is especially stupid in in terms of only national security. If, if you go to the DDDAS website, you'll see that there are groups who are trying to sell that approach. Out of maybe 100 groups, the biggest number are sort of your routine, cut and dried, baby MLP, 20 years old at least. There were two groups that are just way the hell ahead of them. And in this particular conference, one of them was PWC. And one was RTX. RTX is the new merger of Raytheon and UTC, where my old post office friend went. And um, PwC is, well, Price Waterhouse. What's left over after they killed Arthur Anderson and they got a new competitor. And both of those organizations have people who are not doing the more advanced stuff we talked about, but they at least caught up with the most advanced stuff that we were doing. And, and so people will tell you, oh, you'll never build a Terminator robot. Don't, don't worry about things like slaughterbots and Terminator weapons and autonomous weapons. That's all science fiction. And, and these groups would say that science fiction, maybe in 100 years we'll learn how to do it. And then another group is doing it and they're building it and nobody is stopping them from doing it. Um, there are people stopping them from advertising it, you know, for obvious reasons. But the bottom line is that there are very advanced projects going on in the world that are decades ahead of almost all of their competition. There is mathematics, which is decades beyond them. So it's just incredible what the diversity is. Wow. Very interesting. Thank you, Paul. We've been talking to Paul Werbos, inventor of the most commonly used technique to train artificial neural networks, an algorithm called error propagation. Thanks for listening. Until next time, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.